Welcome to FRT, the IAF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr and today we're in Tokyo, the IAF G20 conference, which we are holding en route to Fukuoka for the G20 finance ministers and civil and governance minister. Our guest on FRT today is Doug Peterson. Doug is the CEO and President of SP Global and he's also a steward of the World Economic Forum's Shaping the Future of Long-Term Investing, Infrastructure and Development Systems and a member of the WEF's Financial Services Governance Community. Doug, thank you for joining us and welcome to FRT. Thank you, Brad. It's great to be back in Tokyo. I always love being here and with the IAF being the host of this, it's even better. So tell me, this is probably a good place to start. How many years did you live here during your time when you were leading Citigroup in Japan? I was here for six years from the beginning of 2004 to the end of 2009. Interesting time. And it's a market here that historically has not seen a lot of innovation in financial services, certainly in the payment sector is, is one example. But the local banks, and I think the JFSA, have been very active in trying to promote innovation in more recent times. When you return here now as a visitor, are there striking differences that you most notice? Well, in some ways, they, there aren't that many differences. It's as if the financial system is pretty much the same as when I left in 2009, beginning of 2010. One of the things that's very interesting to note is that when I arrived here in 2004, there was an incredibly sophisticated payment system for micropayments that was part of the, uh, the subway and train systems. Yes. So you could get onto a subway or train with a card or a token, and you could use that then to pay for shoe shines, for newspapers, for magazines, for ramen in the train station, but it never left that ecosystem. Yeah, okay. And when I got here, it was, it was one of the most sophisticated payment systems in the world, but it never took off. The banks never embraced it. It never went into the general population. There's still an economy where there's a lot of cash. What you were just describing reminds me of the Douglas card, I think it was in Hong Kong. Yeah, and for a time, that kind of stifled innovation by banks because that card just became so, so everywhere. It, it dominated the payment sector completely. The one year never went into the mainstream. It never became a major payment card. But, but on the other hand, there's a lot of innovation going on in Japan outside of the financial sector. Robotics yeah, and micromanufacturing in medical devices. If you see what uh, Sone is doing at SoftBank, investments he's been making in mobility and autonomous vehicles and ride sharing programs, etc. There's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of investment available for innovation. In the engineering sector, Japan is very well known for its manufacturing equipment that's used to manufacture things. They're a major exporter of manufacturing equipment. Their automotive sector is still quite competitive. But when it comes to the financial sector, in particular payments and fintech and things like that, Japan is not known as a hotbed of innovation. You give me a good reminder there, back on episode 20, we had Mike Hogan from UFG and he described some of the innovations that they've been pursuing using things like GPS tracker chips, but also the thermometer chips in the delivery of computer goods, for instance, and how increasingly using blockchain technology and smart contracts, it's the moment when something gets plugged in and the thermometer warms up, becomes the, the acceptance of the contract. I think that's quite groundbreaking. So, so we spoke earlier today on the, the C-suite panel on the future of finance with Hirano-san, Jose Vignales, and, and Solania. We only scratched the surface on a few things, and we'll take the chance now to delve a little bit further. I'd like to start with a point you made on the investments that you and S&P are making in new technologies. And if I can ask you to elaborate a little further, I understand you're doing a lot with machine learning and also with visualization and delivery tools. Five years ago, we realized that we had to start disrupting ourselves. We looked at a combination of disruption through incubation, through having our own people disrupt our own businesses, 
we looked at investing in fintech and we developed a portfolio of financial technology firms that we invested through venture capitalists. And then we also have done acquisitions. And what we've seen is that in the value chain, there's really three phases of value chain. The first is data ingestion. The second is transforming that data into products or product processing. Then the third is delivery. And let me give you a couple of examples of, of some of the more exciting things we've done. In the data ingestion, when we bought a company called Kensho, which is a machine learning and artificial intelligence company last year, they immediately found an opportunity to use their data linking and data ingestion uh, using machine learning tools uh, to bring in a, a database of 400,000 private companies from Crunchbase. It took them about two weeks to test and program the algorithm that would learn about linking the data and then about six hours to bring the data in. If we would have done it ourselves, it would have taken six months. Yeah, and so we did something in about two weeks that would have taken six months. Another example of something we're doing with Kencho, we call it OmniSearch. Today in our uh, market intelligence, CapIQ, SNL, uh, data platforms, desktops, we have a search bar. And when you type in that search bar, that search looks literally for the word in the data fields within our system. Right. And so if you type in the word drone, it's going to look and see anything that's called Drone Inc. or Drone International or Drone Product, etc. But the way this new contextual search works called OmniSearch, it will understand that Lockheed Martin and the GoPro make drones and they will come up as the companies that make drones. In addition with this contextual search, you can do it with natural language processing. So you can ask a sentence, put it in there, and it's going to understand what the sentence is. The reason we undertook all this is that we went and observed the users, our clients, the personas as we call them, that are the end users, not necessarily the buyers, but the users, the analysts that use what we do. Yes. And we realized that they're frustrated by multiple screens, multiple products, multiple search tools. And we needed to come up with something that was going to stick on their desk and they were going to end up using it because it was so valuable and so relevant. Right. It sounds a great way to actually bring the multiple different sources of information together into a single place. And I think what you described also resonates when we did the IF the first survey of machine learning crews, we found a number of banks using those sort of techniques to try and capture supply chain data. If you're looking at a particular borrower, understanding what's newsworthy around both the customers that they rely on as their, for their, uh, their sales, but also for the, the producers that are inputting in their own supply chain, really does help to streamline a lot of that, that analysis. Let me add something about supply chain. A company I didn't mention, last year we bought a company called Pangeva. And one of the themes that we've been uh, working on at SV Global is to add alternative data to our platforms beyond the traditional corporate data and financial data. You look at things like fundamentals, financial statements, corporate actions, etc. But we've seen a lot of demand for non-traditional data. We bought a company called Pangeva, which uh, many years ago went around the world and got a source data from every port and airport in the world for their imports and exports of goods. And then on top of that, they built machine learning and artificial intelligence tools that mines that data. And you can see trends and patterns of imports and exports around the world. It's highly likely that using that data, you will know that Apple changed the source of its camera or its battery before anybody else yeah, does right. it. Yeah. On our panel today, you also touched on the increased demand for, for data and analytics in a lot of respects, but as one specific example in the area of ESG. One emerging aspect in that space that I think is, seems to be getting more investor attention now is about plastics. And I think that the metrics and analytics for plastics are probably less mature than that for carbon footprints. But I'm just curious what you see emerging in that space. 
Yeah, we have a company called TrueCost, which is part of SAP Global, that measures water waste and carbon output of companies. As I've mentioned, I mentioned on the panel, that information is, is sourced through self-reporting. It's not audited the same way you'd see a financial statements, but it's still an excellent source and has a, a good time series. It's been going back many, many years. And we're seeing more and more demand for that waste component to measure the plastic output of companies and what's the plastic waste. This is something that is a, a being driven very much from a social point of view. It's, it's received a lot of attention. There's a large whirlpool of plastic in the South Pacific. There's some beaches around the world that plastic is coming up on. There's a, a kid in the United States that measured how many straws are used and thrown away every year. So I think plastics is going to be one of the areas that's going to get a lot of attention. And we're coming up with ways to measure that with our true cost environmental measuring tools. Yeah, it's a, a growing area of focus, and I think we're, where that tool will be very welcome. Um, we ran short of time on our panel, but one other thing was about the evolution of pension and investment systems. And I'd like your view as to whether you think that the trend of technological innovation will help to keep pace with the demographic changes and the, the different investment preferences that we're seeing in the it will. And, and first of all, this is this is going to be one of the major challenges for governments around the world. And there's a couple challenges on it. First of all, there's many economies that really don't have a specialized institutional investor framework, which includes the insurance and the pension sector. And that's really important to develop those. What does that bring? It brings a yield curve. It brings a, an exchange rate. It allows you to hedge your currency. And it, it also allows the entire financial sector to become much more sophisticated and, and much more transparent along with the ability to trade and have cross-border flows. There's an underlying reason why thinking about the importance of institutional investors helps the entire financial system. Now, a little bit more specifically to what you're asking about within those systems, technology is going to be a, a friend to building um, new pension systems and financial systems compared to some of the ones that have been around a lot longer. And one of that is because of costs. You know, there's, a, there's a, an inherent cost in building financial systems, transaction costs. And if you can remember the old days when to buy and sell shares, it cost $3 a share or you know, $39.95 to buy and sell 100 shares and the broker made fees and everybody made fees. Those days are gone. Absolutely. And you can get much more transparent information, get faster information. You also have no tools like the uh, like uh, indices as a way to benchmark against an industry at a much lower cost. So I do think that the, the pension system around the world is going to be able to develop with much more transparent tools, with much lower costs in mind. But at the end of the day, it requires political will. The pension issues which are uh, arising around the world, including in the United States, with the question of how we're going to finance it, they require a, a political will because you have to look at what are the aspects of the population, what are, what's the age that you want to start having people retire and get a government pension, what is the healthcare system that's going to be provided by the government, how much, uh, how much is there going to be reliance on the private sector, are there going to be tax incentives to allow the private sector to build up their pension system. So these are the kinds of questions that need to be asked around the world. And I believe that this is one of the most important long-term financial issues that we need to deal with in almost every economy. I guess, you know, you have the overlying questions of defined benefit versus you know, defined contributions, which is at a different stage in different markets around the world. Uh, with that, the ability of people to be able to walk from one fund to the other and the liquidity uh, demands or expectations, either as a matter of legislation or 
what customers have come to expect. And then you have those customers, I guess, perhaps bringing some of the experiences they're having with other sectors where they're increasingly getting exposed to more personalised or more immediate services. Perhaps they're going to expect the same in their pension and investment services as well. Well, and they could. And in addition, right now, there's a, I'd say, maybe serious issue in Europe and, and North America where you're right now we're in a zero interest rate environment. So there are people who retired a few years ago and expected that they were going to be living off of income from fixed income instruments yeah. with the with the more normalized interest rate in the United States was three and a half to four percent. Right now it's it's a lot lower than that. So will are they generating the income or are they having to take a lot more risk uh, in order to generate the wealth and income that they need for their retirement. So this is this is a really critical sector. I'm glad you asked about it. I'm glad it's on the I'm glad it's something that's on the radar because it's, it's many times, as I said, politically not very popular because mm. it's a long-term issue that needs to be addressed. And so I think IIF's ability to be one of the key groups that's keeping this alive as an issue is really done. It's a big focus for us, and, and I think you know, we are going to need to see the development of more innovative solutions and offerings in order to close some of these substantial gaps and challenges uh, that you refer to. So thank you, Doug. And if I could briefly highlight a couple of your key points, uh, I think it's a really interesting one that we need to uh, uh, bear in mind looking around the world around the challenge of getting payments innovation uh, actually beyond the original point of innovation and, and more broadly into the mainstream. Uh, and certainly that's something that's a big focus for the IF in our digital identity and our data localization work where we look at some of the innovations in emerging markets that have helped to promote financial inclusion in some cases but on a closed market basis and it's really important that we have those connections into the broader financial system. Uh, the opportunities with machine learning, I think it's, this is a really fascinating space. Uh, beyond the, the first IOF survey that I alluded to, we're right in the midst at the moment of doing a refresh of that survey with the, the 60 banks and mortgage insurers that participated a year ago, and we'll have some great insights to share on that, that shortly. And I'm really intrigued with the, the true cost uh, initiative you mentioned in terms of measuring the, the carbon, water and waste elements and expanding that further as we become more sophisticated on that waste component. Um, our sister podcast, uh, All About the Green, uh, Sonia Gibbs, I think uh, my colleague will probably look to, to pick it up and explore that one further at, at another time. Looking ahead on FRT, we have some further great guests joining us in the coming weeks. I'm going to be in Stockholm, where we'll explore Sweden's cashless economy and the emerging digital krona, uh, both with SCB CEO Johan Torgaby and also with Brisbane Governor Stefan Ingvers. And then we'll also bring all the highlights of the IAF Machine Learning Roundtable which Commerce Bank are kind of hosting in their Frankfurt headquarters. Please tune in again for those great upcoming episodes via the IAF website on SoundCloud and now on Apple Podcasts. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for joining us on FRT.